Welcome to this edition of the Great Mind Series podcast. We are honored today to have in person with us in the studio, uh, Tony Freeland. She is, uh, uh, you, you've been with Wolverine Worldwide, if I, I yeah. can I tell the year? Yeah, yeah. 1995? Yeah, almost right? 22 years. Almost Crazy. 22 years. Yeah. And uh, she is the Director of Learning and Organizational Development. Um, Wolverine Worldwide is a West Michigan company. So for these, those of you outside the United States, it is on Lake Michigan, if you know where that is. Uh, but it is also a global company. It's in the EU. It's in Canada. Yep. You have locations Asia, in Asia. Yeah, Boston and Rockford. Yep. And uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting company. I did a, a little background. 1883, it started as a leather mm-hmm. shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Long rich, his, <laughs> long, rich history. Yeah. Long, rich history. Which we're very proud of. And now publicly traded yes. on the New York Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can correct this if I am not correct. But about 6,000 employees. Yeah, we actually are right around the 4,500 mark. Okay. So we've recently gone through some, um, a few brand divestitures and also some downsizing in some of our okay. retail, retail stores, our typical brick and mortar locations. Great. And about two and a half million a year yep, annual yep, sales yep, or so. Yep. Okay. Just for the people listening, um, brands, just talk to us, uh, Hush Puppy. And- yeah, sure. So most of the time, even locally, when you say Wolverine Worldwide, people don't necessarily have a connection with that. Right. So I typically will say Wolverine Worldwide, a global wholesaler and retailer for, you know, footwear and apparel brands. Our, you know, footwear brands include Merrill, Saucony, Hush Puppies, Keds. Uh, we've got some great licensed brands like Caterpillar and Harley right. Davidson. Um, so we actually have a, a collection of of 12 brands um, between our Rockford and our Boston, Massachusetts location. And you're a bit interesting because you're both a significant manufacturer, but you also, I think I wrote down about 300 retail locations. Yeah. So um, with we had a large-scale acquisition uh, back in 2012, which in essence, uh, we purchased four Boston-based brands, Ked, Saucony, Stride, Wright, and Sperry. And that uh, pretty much doubled the size of the organization wow. overnight. So we went from 12 to 16 brands and uh, doubled headcount in one of the, the big opportunity areas for us was in the stores. So okay. we had about 100 stores uh, traditionally, wow. and then we went up to over 350 stores. So if you read any of the the blogs, if you keep up with kind of you know some bankruptcy information, you can see it's really tough for retail out there. Very much and so, so um, Wolverine, like many, you know, we're seeing Tremendous growth in our e-com business, um, but the traditional brick and mortar in the stores has been challenging. So over the past year and a half, we have closed, um, you know, quite a few of our stores. We just recently also announced about um, two months ago um, the the divestiture of our Stride Right brand, and so Stride okay. Right was the one that had the majority of our uh, stores for kids' footwear, and so now we're at about a hundred to hundred and fifty stores again. Okay. Yeah. Well, you have been all over the place. We've done, yeah, 95. There were three brands all the way up yeah. to 16. So it has been a long, crazy ride, but it's been pretty good. And you have uh, that combination of manufacturing. So you have to train. Most of our audience mm-hmm. are in learning, training, and development. Yeah. So we are sort of talking to ourselves here. Yeah. Uh, but you have, I, I, I read a bit of your bio. You've been in, uh, really started in human resources mm-hmm. and then early 2000s started making a transition into training and mm-hmm. and um, all the way up now to, to be the director of this. And there aren't a lot of people who have been in learning, training, and development that long, and there aren't 
a lot of people who have been through um, acquisitions, through mergers, mm -hmm. through uh, downsizing, through upsizing, <laughs> right sizing, uh, right sizing, <laughs> yeah. right. I mean, those those are those are yeah. remarkably tumultuous events in training, even if the news is good. Yeah. I mean, when you acquire a new uh, company, now mm -hmm. you have to think through. Okay, culture, skills, techniques. Um, yeah, kind of aligning different businesses with different ways of doing things and different skill sets and maybe, you know, the culture values different things. So, right. And I think you hit on something there. Like we, uh, in 95, I mentioned we had three brands. 97, we started really acquiring brands and that became a big part of our strategy. And uh, from 97 on, about every year and a half to two years, we would acquire a brand. Okay. So one of the common questions that people ask me is like, you know, wow, you know, you, why did you stay 22 years? Like most people do not, right. um, you know, stay that long at one company, especially today, you know, that was definitely more common with past generations. Certainly. And so for me, um, you know, if you know anything about disc styles, I'm a high eye. Okay. I get bored easily. I like a challenge. I like to dig into things, but I like a lot of new things. And so every year Shiny and a half, new to, yeah, a, a little. <laughs> uh, I'm not quite like squirrel, squirrel, yeah. but it, it can be a little bit that way. It might be a little there. Yeah, yeah it, it can be a little on certain days. Uh, I will admit. But anyway, um, so every year and a half to two years acquiring a new brand, just when you thought you had it figured out and you were starting to get a little stale, suddenly this new brand would come in, a new group of people, a new um, you know opportunity to dig in and kind of find out who they are. And one of the things um, which can be good and can be a bit challenging about Wolverine is our 12 brands today are very much like little mini businesses. Right. So Wolverine is is more of and a... They almost think of themselves as separate business units. Yeah, right? so I, we are no. more or traditionally, we've been more of a holding company for brands. Right. And so each brand has their own, um, you know, brand president, sales, marketing. Um, and then we layer that across with central services. So like customer service, finance and HR, right. uh, which learning falls under, is a shared resource. So you have 12 to 16 groups that you're working with and walking into a new group is almost, I always say at Wolverine, I'm like, it's like walking into a new planet, right? Like right. you have to figure out who are your people. People, what's their culture? Kind of what egos do you have to manage, and how do you influence to get done what you need to get done? Training styles, so, education absolutely. levels, yeah. language issues. Yeah, certain things fly um, in some brands that would not work in another wow. brand. So really trying to get to understand, you know, the the collective of Wolverine worldwide because we certainly have those corporate global things that we're responsible for. So you know, trying to engage our employees around the world, mm -hmm. um, and really trying to adjust to you know not having one size fits all. We have a very small team, so that can be extremely difficult. And then you add on the complexity of the 12 brands and in a highly matrixed organization. <laughs> so we're matrixed through our retail arm and we're matrixed through our international arm. So right. while we're not the largest West Michigan company, we are a very complex company. And so for me, um, the past 22 years has been just a really fun journey. I'm, I'm one of those geeks kind of about human dynamics and what makes people tick 
and why do we do yeah. what we do? So I love to observe and be a part of human behavior. So it's been a really cool opportunity for me to kind of see the company grow yeah. and then also to be a part of that. So, so that's you, why you, I stayed 22 years. <laughs> you're basically doing a jigsaw puzzle that keeps yeah. re-identifying yeah. itself. Which right? is perfect for changing. the eye personality, Absolutely. right? It's, it right. fits right so, in. Uh, an awful lot of people uh, that listen to this podcast are in retail. Mm -hmm. So they are learning, training, and development people inside of okay. retail. We do – university does a lot of work mm -hmm. with retail. And retailers are nervous, scared because uh, – right? There's, there's, there's all – some brands are really, really great mm -hmm. and, and doing fine. And others are terrified. Um, training budgets are being cut. They're – uh, or training teams are being entirely eliminated. Um, are you? You're, I, I'm assuming you're following those trends. What are you? What are you seeing? Having been at one company with a retail division uh, for all that time. Yeah. So we, um, you know, I've seen a lot, right? So back in '95, Wolverine was a traditional retail manufacturer. Mm -hmm. In the early 2000s, we started outsourcing a lot of our. Um, you know, the, the making and manufacturing of our product overseas. And we really started transitioning from that um, manufacturer to um, a wholesaler. Mm -hmm. And then back about seven years ago, we started changing our language again from being a wholesaler to a retailer, right? So getting in tune with the consumer. Right. And our focus as a wholesaler was always on that. Um, what we call our customer would be that retail buyer. So right. going into a Macy's and Nordstrom's and Dick's and REI, whatever it might be be um, in selling to that buyer. So very concerned with selling. All of those companies, again, for those of you who are international listeners, uh, large, large, large retail organizations. Right. Yes. Um, and we have a much stronger retail presence um, domestically in the U.S. Okay. Um, we don't have a lot of stores. So Hush Puppies, um, we like to say kind of, you know, went global before global was popular. Right, so right. they went global in 1958. Yeah, I've seen Hush Puppies all yeah. around the world. So they actually yeah. have a larger presence internationally than they right. do domestically. And Hush Puppies is probably our best example of an international retailer. Okay. So we have a, a ton of third-party distributors that, um, you know, we own the brand, the strategy of the brand and where we want the brand to go. And then we partner internationally with these third party distributors and then they okay. will, um, you know, sell the brand. And right. so the brand might look a little bit different in each each country. But from a retail perspective, I would say especially the last um, year to two and a half years, it has been really tough. I mean, we talk a lot about you know how retail uh, buying habits are changing, how the consumer is changing. Like Very you look so. at Amazon and just um, you know, so this is kind of two sides of my mouth speaking. So when I talk about Amazon from the perspective of as a consumer, I love Amazon because it's a one click. I go out there, I can find anything I want. I one click it. It ships to me within two days, and I've got Incredible. it. Incredible. If, if I don't like it, I print off a label, I return it, no questions asked. Right. So they're really changing the game for companies like Wolverine. So how does Wolverine compete to that against that, right? You have um, uh, con consumers, customers going out on our retail sites, looking at our product and buying it and having that expectation that it's going to be free shipping and I'm going to get it either overnight or in two days. Right. When you're a wholesaler, you're not set up right. to distribute to that model. Right. So we are finding ourselves having to change completely and rethink how we do things. So to move from that wholesale mindset to that consumer mindset, not only from a warehousing distribution strategy, a right. 
store perspective and an e-com perspective. So, you know, a lot of the, the last two years and the change in, you know, what we've seen with consumer buying habits have hit us, um, you know, just as, as much as it's hit other organizations. Do you, do you think of yourself, much of your, the, the, the training and learning that you develop um, is obviously pointed at retail. You, you've got supply chain issues. Do you do much training inside of manufacturing or is all of that uh, somebody else's responsibility? So I would love to say that we have amazing manufacturing-based training. Um, you yeah, know, so we, would everybody yeah, else. Yeah, so would everybody. But, but they'd you, all you, be lying yeah. and you we gotta all You've got to be real, it. right, about, you know, every training organization <laughs> right. does not have unlimited resources. Right. And it's up to that department to figure out where you're going to spend you know, Absolutely. spend your resources and what makes the most sense. So honestly, where we spend the majority of our time is our corporate training. Okay. So right. um, we do a lot around the leadership development space, team effectiveness, everything okay. from global compliance, sales, team effectiveness, leadership development. We do partner in our retail stores, but quite honestly, what we do is try to provide the infrastructure for our, our right. regional managers, district managers, and store managers. And then they're really the arm that goes off and sure. provides that training. Yeah. It, it, because a lot of that is is uh, more of the on the job, Absolutely. you know, Stand how to run the register, watch, right. how to greet the customer. So right. we provide the framework and the guidelines and okay. the solid learning, right. um, and then it's up to the the store level to implement that. So, given the complexity of Wolverine worldwide, um, you're dealing with multiple brands, multiple mm-hmm. cultures. You're dealing with a mix of retail and some manufacturing. What are some of the big challenges? What are some of the biggest challenges uh, <laughs> you, you, you face in, sure. in heading up learning? And, and then, of course, I'm, I'm also going to ask you about the opportunities. So maybe, yeah. maybe those are the same things. Maybe yeah. the challenges and the opportunities are the same things. I think they are for us, really. And um, a lot of our strategy and our focus is really around mm-hmm. creating a culture of learning and creating a culture of accountability. Define so, a culture of learning. Yeah. So I think that each each company might define that differently, but for us, so I I moved over into the learning space about 15 years ago, and at that time we didn't have a learning and development department. So I was um, there were a couple of HR people that were well, yeah, responsible yeah. for sort of doing something, right? Everybody's I, I got think, the same yeah, story. Yeah, they were there were people doing training. I just right. am not sure that it was the training that we needed or that was right. probably right for where the organization was at the time. So um, my story, you know, I, I started out kind of entering level HR. Um, Six months into the role, I saw an opportunity. We had a manufacturing plant at the time. Um, We had much more manufacturing back in 95, and we had just terrible turnover. My manager at the time couldn't keep up, and I was like, hey, raise my hand. I'd love to be able to do this. So I knew nothing about recruiting. (laughs) Sorry sorry for interrupting. Did did you have any education in your, or was that ever a... I do a lot of podcasts, mm-hmm. obviously, and have a lot of conversations about learning and training. And I, and I, and I find that transition of um, I was always interested in learning and how people learn and why yeah. people learn. And all of a sudden, nobody else wanted to do it. And the technology really wasn't there. And it was 10 or 15 or yeah, 20 years ago. Yeah, you just kind of plunked into it. Right. And somebody goes, hey, how about you? And you go, 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's exactly my journey. That's a bit of your story. Yeah, I started and I was actually the recruiter for the factory. So oh. I did that for about two, three, actually about four years. And I was recruiting, started doing some corporate recruiting, our right. sales, this, that, and the other thing. And then uh, we lost our head of learning at the time, and it was training and development back then. And we lost our head of training and development. My manager at the time was asked to take over that function. And she had um, said, I'll do it, but I want Tony to come with me. Um, so I decided to make the transition, and it was a huge adjustment at first. So the world of talent acquisition is very quick-paced and, um, you know, very tyranny of the urgent, right? You have a need, and you need to fill it. You, yeah. It, most it companies, it's very— Quick, you know, quick, you, quick, quick, quick. Even for us, it's, it's yeah. we have a need, and, and it, it's very hard to anticipate what those needs are yeah. going to be. So it's accurately. a very different pace, and then you move over into the learning space and in a space where— there wasn't a defined job, so that's very liberating in some ways. But as and a, some people don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, and right? as, a, and as a, go, like a 24, 25 year old, it's a little bit of oh, this is exciting. I get to create what I want to create, but then it's also a little bit like I don't know what I want to create, so, <laughs> or how to do it. Yeah, right, or how yeah. to do it. And it was yeah. really more like I don't know how to do this. So what we were experiencing actually was some pretty significant turnover at the factory. So I still was doing the recruiting. My manager said, "Would you like to try this training stuff out?" And I said, "Well, I don't really know how to train. Like I don't know what that right. means." Um, And she said, well, I have training background. I'll teach you. So we started by developing like a 12-week training program Mm -hmm. for our production supervisors. I call it kind of like the how to play nice in the sandbox, just basic interpersonal accountability management skills and found that I really enjoyed it. And then an opportunity came up for me to transition out of recruiting into training and development, did that. And the first two years, like there was no presence. Nobody knew who we were. And I'll never forget this. I remember had pretty good success at our in our manufacturing plants. I approached our director of distribution at the time and you know said, "Hey, I've got this great training program. It's working out really well. I'd love to get in front of your audience and, you know, provide this to our our warehouse supervisors too." And he said, "Well, I'll tell you what. You come in a room, you present your stuff. That's what he called it. You present your so stuff whatever that to is. me <laughs> and to the uh, directors. And if we think you're good enough, we'll give you a shot. Okay. So, you know, there's a little bit of a, okay, you got to prove it. There was a little bit of an irritation there too. Like, right. are you kidding me? Right. But I took on the challenge, yep. provided, you know, obviously it must have been somewhat okay. Because, and it turns out they needed yeah. to learn too. And so must yeah. have been okay. Got that opportunity. And for Wolverine, it's really been a 15-year grassroots training effort. Right. So we didn't have that top down leadership approach from a learning and development perspective. It was me. And then additionally, over the years, subsequent team members kind of just pushing and clawing and scraping our way and trying to prove our value, prove our worth. And, um, you know, and where we've landed kind of 15 years later is we now do executive level leadership development. So for the senior Everybody sees the value now. They do now. But when I talk about that learning culture, corporately, we're still not there yet, right? Right. Like we fundamentally believe in learning and the value that learning brings, but we're no different than any other training company. You know, three, four, five years ago, the first thing to be cut would be training and development. So when you're not supporting something with your dollars, it sends a pretty clear message. So. It, it does, but it, it um, so I've taught economics for yeah. a number of years and examining corporations, most of them, you know, you, you can cut training for a while because you have some residual effect. You can mm-hmm. cut marketing for a while because you have some, have yeah. some residual effect. And what we found in, in the economic downturn in the United States in 2009, 10, 11, and so on, those, those departments got cut 
And at some point, the bell curve kicked in. Yeah. Right. Of like the 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 reservoir is empty. Yeah. We're seeing the ramifications really, and consequences of not investing in skill development. Exactly. Here. Yeah. And 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 it doesn't show up for a yeah. while. There is a reservoir, but when it shows up, um, it shows up in a really bad way. Yeah. And um, it's very it, as you said earlier, it's very hard to quickly turn that on. Yeah. And it's not like, well, let's start marketing next week. Well, you probably it, can do it that. It takes a number of years before or a number of months sometimes. And that's what we found. So mm-hmm. we were in this position of we really need to grow our learning department. We think we have, you know, a strategic value to offer to the organization. And how do we do that? So about two years ago, we really started down this path of um, how do we brand ourselves? So mm-hmm. one executive said in a very loving manner to me one day, he's like, you know, I've been watching and I've been paying attention to what you guys are doing and you're doing a lot of really good things. He said, but you know what your problem is? And I was like, I'm sure you will enlighten me. You know, and he said, you suck at marketing. You don't know how to sell yourself. And, and it was absolutely true. And, you right. know, I took a lesson from that and I could have just said, well, you know, you don't know what you're talking about and went on my merry way. But I said, you know what? He's right. And we need to kind of come out from underneath the, the, you know, the shadows. And so we really started a concerted campaign to brand ourselves, create an image, every piece of communication Mm -hmm. laddered up to that. We put a lot of effort and energy into coming up with our metrics and showcasing those, identifying the strategy, laddering up to strategy wherever we could and... We're not there yet. We're not a learning organization, right. but we're making strides it, in isn't progress. It, isn't it strange that you're doing that internally? But it, it's it's uh, most of our clients are yeah. large corporations, yeah. and because the smaller ones simply can't afford what we do. Um, occasionally, that you have a CEO who's really committed to this, but most of the time they're sub organizations, and they're constantly singing for their supper. They're uh-huh. constantly having to make that. And, and it's the other interesting side of this is is in the transition to e-learning, mm-hmm. the executive will look at it and say, well, this is wonderful because you could save a million dollars a year in our training. You could make it more consistent um, and you could make it stickier. So mm-hmm. I'm going to save money. It's going to be more consistent, better training, and it's going to be retained longer. Um, <clears throat> if you don't do that, those those markers, if you don't hit those markers, um, you might be in a really precarious position yeah. in, in the company. Yeah. And so as we're talking to, you know, people inside HR teams and people inside learning, training and development teams, whatever they call themselves, um, there is some level of if this doesn't work, my career is in serious trouble. Uh, and, and it I, – I, Honestly, this is the first time I ever talked about this in a podcast. <laughs> it's a little disconcerting, but but I had a conversation with with I mean, an organization that is just enormous. It's one hundred and sixty five thousand uh, employees about exactly this, and they're trying to make the transition to e learning, which is crazy because you think you really have one hundred and sixty five thousand employees, and you're just now making that transition. And he said to me, "Yes." But I think you're failing to understand how professionally dangerous this is. If this isn't good, if it isn't right, if it doesn't do what I'm promising it will do, professionally, I'm in some serious trouble. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're the ones building the training for him. 
And so, you know, our team is suddenly realizing that if we don't do our jobs well, that person's job is on the line. Uh-huh. And that's a that's a pretty disconcerting feeling. It 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 I you know, an outsider would assume an organization of 6,000, 4,500, 12,000, 100,000 that those would be really sophisticated learning systems. And sometimes they are. The vast majority of times they are not. Yeah. And there's a long way to go. Yeah, there is. I mean, e-learning's been around for a really long time, right? And right. when it first started coming out, it was, oh, it's going to take over the world, yep. right? Everything's going to move to an e-learning platform. And then, you know, e-learning delivered in some ways, didn't deliver in others. And then suddenly it's the virtual world is going to take everything by storm, mm-hmm. right? And I think as a learning professional, it can be tough, especially when you have a global workforce, really trying to step back and assess, like, what's your strategy? What right. fits in? How do you engage employees? Because it's really hard now there's so much clutter out there it's really difficult to get people's time and attention and get them to you know how do they see you through all the clutter and um you know for us when we look at that you know we try to assess all right what are those programs that just you know they don't make sense from an e-learning right. perspective. Yeah. Um, what are those programs that can be done virtually, can be yeah. done in a web-based environment? And so we use all three, but I can certainly respect that person's um, you know, perspective. So right. just for some context, we have um, four high potential leadership development programs. And about a year ago, I was asked to take on the executive program. And it really needed an overhaul and a redesign. And so mm-hmm. I started digging in, figuring out what I was going to do, doing some research, and um, my research led me to a partnership with Harvard Business Publishing. And they had this phenomenal, amazing program that I thought would fit really well with our needs, but the program was virtual. And I was really concerned with, oh, I don't know that our culture at this level is ready for virtual training. And it was a huge leap on my part to say, well, you know what? We have to develop leaders around the globe. And we can't develop leaders around the globe with our traditional face-to-face model where people have to make three trips to the United States. You know, maybe that's not that cumbersome if you're sitting in Boston or maybe even Canada. But coming from the U.K., specifically coming from Asia, it just doesn't work. So we... Time zones don't work. For the virtual. time zones, the yeah. travel. I mean, travel so incredibly expensive. Right. Um, so <laughs> we really pushed ourselves to say, okay, maybe we can't go all virtual mm-hmm. um, initially, but maybe we can do a blend. Yeah. And it was a little bit of an experiment to say, you know, can we push our culture to kind of get there when it comes to e-learning right. and when it comes to virtual learning? And that's been a journey for us the past three years. I would say yeah. we've really been pushing to have more global offerings, and in order to do that, it's an e-learning in a virtual learning combination instead of yeah. the traditional instructor-led. I think when we first started, um, e-learning's been, like you say, around a long time, but but half a dozen years ago, it got cheaper and better. Yeah. So the technology got cool. The rapid authoring and, tools changed the world, right. right? You suddenly went from, I don't have to spend $50,000 for a flash-based uh, course yes. to I can do it myself. <laughs> and not only can, I can do it myself, but if something changes, I can go in there and make exactly. a quick change on the fly, republish, yep. and I'm good to go. The first, I remember one of the first conversations we had with somebody about, it, it was a really cool idea, but he came back with a proposal for $100,000 for like an eight-minute course. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's a little Who steep. can afford that? Right. I, it's awesome what you can do. <laughs> But all of a sudden, you know, the tools got better, the technology got better, and I think along with that came an optimism that 
all of the magic was in the tools. Yeah. All of the magic was in the tech. Mm. And, and how you could wow people and exactly. almost kind of you, you, you make can. the you make the the e-learning right, and there is some science to the fact that you have to make it more visually engaging and appealing so um, that people are going to actually uh, stop what they're doing and focus on agreed. it. But I do think you're right that the the visual appeal kind of took over the it learning did. substance, and, and suddenly it it seemed like instructional design didn't matter. It seemed like uh, the big push was the tool can do everything, and what. What we found in working with companies all over the world is, wait, stop. I'm not even sure e-learning is right for you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It was maybe, a shiny maybe, new object that everybody wanted to right. jump on board. Maybe we need to talk instructor-led. Maybe we need to build blended. Maybe you need to look at virtual. But that it it kind of felt a little bit like I'm going to build a house. I'm just going to get some wood and start hammering nails. Yeah. And we'll see what happens. <laughs> and and the the I and and I think a lot of companies you know, even internal teams don't have a lot of appreciation for the blueprint. At the end of the day, the tools are the tools. The blueprint matters. How you do this matters. Well, I think, you know, the rapid authoring. So I I think, you know, learning is is just as guilty as other industries, whatever the new thing that's coming, you know, down the pipeline, you don't want to be the team that's left behind. So I know Wolverine was this way. We've been doing our own internal e-learning, I would say for probably seven or eight years. Mm -hmm. So we had wanted to do some of the cool e-learning flash-based stuff, and we just simply couldn't afford it. And so once some of the rapid authoring tools came out, you know, we we bought them. It was a two-person team at the time, myself, and I had one employee. And so we purchased it. You know, we went to a class. We were like, we know how to use PowerPoint. We can do this. And we started designing away. um, Storyline. I would be, yeah, I would be embarrassed (laughs) if anybody pulled up one of my very early e-learning courses with my so would everyone listening stale to graphics my stale audio right. um, all of that and I, and I think where <laughs> people it's the same as like virtual right you you start doing virtual training and you think oh I I like to talk I can do this and then you realize no, no, no. talking and managing the technology and answering questions and trying to and do engage, the interactive stuff is super hard for one person who's paying attention and who's exactly. not exactly right, right, so right. we were kind of in that same path with the e-learning piece and then we huh. really had to step back and kind of do more of the, okay, what courses are going to work, you know, from an e-learning perspective. And then instead of just trying to wow people with our cool PowerPoints and the fact that we can animate, you know, some guy skipping in on the slide, let's really get back to focusing on the content. And I think you're right that people kind of lost sight of that. And, um, you know, some of those first e-learning courses suffer, which is why I think e-learning sometimes gets a bad rap. And there's a lot of bad e-learning out there there still today. And we've created some of it. Again, we do the same thing. Oh, everybody has, right? we went back and looked at it five years ago, I'm like, yeah. can we delete that? Can we it's somehow... like looking at old photos, right? Yeah. It's, it's no different. All of a sudden, yeah, you're like, why did nobody tell me my hair looked ridiculous? <laughs> right. You know, right. and you yeah. thought you looked super cool at the nope. time. So nope. e-learning is no different. So no, it's, it's a journey and just, you know, trying to figure out like what's going to work for your audience, what isn't going to work, trying yeah. to have a little fun with it, but also trying to, you know, kind of keep it serious and yeah. make sure that there's learning impact. And right. that's one of the things as we've ventured into more and more e-learning, um, and, and honestly, one of the other things that you, you asked about earlier was a challenge was just this whole curation of content, right? right? So we're right. going, we've really moved from kind of the classic instructional design, like you think the Addy model and some of those right. other things. Right. And you're like, 
who has time to do storyboards and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So we move kind of into a rapid development cycle, even for some of our instructional design, um, you know, programming. And it, it just really has, you know, the world of learning has changed and everything is on demand, I need it right now, right. and I wanted it yesterday. And you yeah. need things, you know, five minutes or less, like people's attention span, the whole micro-learning, you know, yeah. with that coming into uh, the yeah. space, it's really kind of changed everything up. We never get a project where someone says, well, we'd like this in about 12 months. Yeah. Right? It's I always, it's like, okay. I need it tomorrow, or I need it in well, two weeks. And it's, and it's like, okay, there's, there's you know, 118 courses, and we need them in two months. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you've clearly never done this before. <laughs> yeah, and they clearly but don't know, like, just the, re- the review cycle and the time that it takes, because, right. you know, you want it to have a decent shelf life. But yeah, right. that whole curation of content has become just kind of a big space. So one of the things for us with e-learning, we might create a course, um, but we've also moved into a lot of curation of content. So I right. talked earlier about kind of creating that learning culture. One of the other things that we're really trying to do is have more of a push philosophy mm-hmm. instead of a pull. Right. So, you know, the onus is on us to go out and find whether it be an article, um, a five-minute training video, an internally developed course that we can package up into relevant content. So let's say it's, you know, mid-year review. Um, You know, we can put out a 10-minute program that might talk about, you know, here's how to give some feedback or here's how to, you know, um, have a difficult conversation with an employee and maybe package that with an article around, you know, the best practices for, you know, feedback, whatever it might be. Six best. Exactly. Just trying to give people learning in those five to 15 minute time frames, which, you know, you think back to when I first started in learning, you know, doing a a one day course, a two day course, multi day courses, like people just don't have the time, the interest or the, um, you know, energy to do that anymore. Or the sitting power, the concentration just to, to, to do it. Opportunities. What do you see in opportunities in learning right now? Yeah, so I see, um, again, for us personally at Wolverine is really that learning culture, right? It's been something that that kind of enigma that we haven't quite captured and defined. So for us, it's really still about it's our greatest challenge and our greatest opportunity when we can you know, get into a brand, get into a group, make a difference, you know, kind of identify that, use it as a success story to kind of share that momentum, um, whether it be PR, whether it be marketing, however you want to look at it, right? Just right. to kind of then use that to propel us into another brand and another and, brand. And, and get them to pull from you. That, yeah. That's, so I've got this, it's not true now, but someday I think People are motivated to learn by good learning, and they will pull what they need when they need it. Yes, absolutely. And you can do that now, right? Google's at your fingertips. We can do that, but I don't know that we actually do that. I I, think in most companies, the the learning culture isn't right. Therefore, I wait for you to push something at me and tell me I need to do it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Instead of me going, hey, Tony, I, I need, you know, or where do I find, or... This is what I face. Um, I think people are very good at finding the learning they need around 
answer a simple question, here's a technology, something or other that I'm struggling with, those very kind of process-oriented quick things that you can Google and get an answer. Where I think we struggle is around that soft skills stuff, right? So it's that that stuff that can't be measured by a computer, like how effective are you at engaging with others, with influencing people, with having a difficult conversation. And those are the pieces that um, I think they're... You know, some people just don't understand all the nuances of that. They get yeah. busy with life, and then they just never take yeah. the time to reach out and find. And those are the things that aren't easy to develop, right? You're not going to watch a five-minute video and go, oh, I am now have an MBA in influencing. And I'm not going to be such a jerk anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My, right? That five-minute <clears throat> video really showed me the error of my ways. Well, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's the tricky part. And, and the difficulty in the measurement is you don't really find out if they got it. Till yeah. something bad happens. Yeah. And then you go, ooh, they didn't really, they're not living our values. They're not really doing. And, and that oftentimes is a way that you find out, right? Is right. Is unfortunately somebody's, yeah. either they made a really big mistake in a public way. Right. Um, or a manager comes to you and says, hey, you know, Tony's just not grasping this and we need some help. Or right. there have been some complaints. Um, one of the other things is part of our learning culture that is a real big opportunity for us is creating that environment of accountability that goes mm-hmm. around with that. So being in West Michigan, I think we have kind of the typical West Michigan nice. Like we don't, we're not good at giving that direct <laughs> feedback. We're not so, good at holding so people accountable. <laughs> just, a, just a little explanation again for people outside of Michigan. West Michigan nice is an expression that means that we think like everybody else, but we're just too kind to say it. Yes, exactly. But we think it just yeah. like everybody else. You're like, but I'm never going to tell you that right. that coat not, is not really ugly. Not and if you face. ask me, I'm going to go, well, maybe it's not my <laughs> preference, but, you know, it's great. Right. So yeah. I think we struggle with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that's a nice quality to have, but it certainly it doesn't move an organization forward. So as leaders, even as yeah. team members, Some to be effective. Some yeah. and, and tough conversations. And are... teaching people how to do it in a kind, compassionate exactly. way, right? Yeah. Like delivering a harsh, harsh message does not need to be belittling right. uh, to an individual. There's a way to do it yeah, where the feedback, s- yeah. Graciously speak the truth. Yeah, so how we, do you do that? we struggle with that. And so part of that learning culture is you can't really have a true learning culture unless you have um, a coaching culture and an accountability culture because they go together, right? Like whether the the coaching and the feedback is on the front end or the back end, probably both, right? I get some kind of feedback that tells me that, you know, I could improve in this area. And then I seek out some learning and then either the learning department, my manager, a combination kind of drives that accountability to show that, you know, I didn't just sit in a training class for a day. I actually learned something and I actually applied it to my behavior. And then there's been a sustained behavior change. So for us, those are kind of the the three, for me, you know, those are the boxes that I'm looking at as kind of that learning culture, that culture of uh, feedback and coaching, and then that culture of accountability. Okay. So I usually end the podcast the same way every time with a song. No, not a song. I'm not singing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, Favorite story. It could, and, and, and people always think it needs to be like my my greatest success. It doesn't. It, some people have told the story of their greatest failure in learning training. What what's your favorite story? As you, you've had a lengthy career yeah. with one company, and you've seen all sorts of transitions and changes and different you know foci on on what you're going to do and not do. Um, 
what's this what's the story when you're retired and sitting in a rocking chair that's just going to make you smile so for me when you know people have people have their careers i see so many people that you know don't love what they do and i mm. really have hit my sweet spot mm. i remember i think my story um, it's kind of a two-parter so my first part was a junior in college trying to figure out what i want to be right like in, you know back in the 90s i'm thinking okay whatever i pick it's what i've got to be for the rest of my natural born life right. um naively One thought yeah naively thought that yeah. right yeah. and so i'm trying accounting i'm trying finance i tried econ i tried stats i'm trying all of these business administration type courses and i'm very goal oriented and goal driven so i was like sister it is four years and out like you've got to pick yeah, a major because go. i'm not going for another year so i remember looking through a catalog of courses and there were these human resources courses and i started reading the descriptions of these courses and i just had like this epiphany and it was talking about people and if you care about people and help people and this is what personnel does that's what it was called back in 95. Sure, so sure. i read that and i remember going people I like people. Who doesn't like people? People kind of like me. <laughs> I think I'm going to try these HR courses. And so I tried them. I liked them. Okay. 22 years later, I am still working in human yeah. resources. Yeah. So it's the story that I say, while it was not this like shining beacon, it was truly a, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? But and you I, knew it when you saw it. I knew it when I saw it, but I am a firm believer. Sometimes you think you know it and then you try it and yeah. you go, this is not what I thought it was. Right. So for me, the second part to my story is why have I done it for this many years? My passion is sitting in a room, either leading a class, running a project, or having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody okay. where we engage in dialogue and I can see the light bulb go off. Right. And it's, I just taught them something. I just opened their mind to a new possibility. I somehow made their life a little bit better today. Yeah. It's not solving world peace or world hunger, but at the end of the day, if they can go back to their work area and get along with their manager a bit better Absolutely. or, you know, walk away with, hey, I have a new approach to how I'm going to do things. Right. And that's kind of my, my story of, you know, how I got into this field and right. why I've stayed in the field. Because I think learning really offers that opportunity to help people discover their strengths, discover their talents, and also to challenge them to say, what are some of those things you're not so good at? And, um, you know, we're all not great at everything. Right. So how do we get a little bit better? Right. And being part of that journey with somebody is super rewarding and just immensely gratifying. Cool. Yeah. So that's well, my thanks, story. For, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, and thanks for, for coming on the Great Mind Series podcast. We uh, yeah. are, are honored to have you uh, and, and have this conversation. So thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right.